Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, here we are week two in our October Halloween-themed month, which we always do every year. And uh, when we do these movies, we look for movies that are oftentimes set in Halloween time or at least have a Halloween spirit about them, something that just seems more appropriate for Halloween. And I think it was with that spirit that I selected this week's movie. And I don't even remember how I found it. It wasn't on any of our lists, and I'm not even sure I knew about it beforehand. But Craig had written me a message this week saying that Elvira was talking about possibly hanging up her dress and also uh, that she had just released a memoir. And so I was like, oh, my gosh. So I was going online. I was going down all these Elvira rabbit holes. And I think it was during that process that I stumbled upon some videos of her hosting and lists of what she was hosting. And I came across this title, The Monster Club, which starred Vincent Price. And I was like, okay, cool. Vincent Price, John Carradine, awesome. It's a horror anthology, awesome. It's The Monster Club, and it has this cool poster of all these kind of old horror movie monsters on it. Fantastic. And Elvira has hosted it twice. She hosted it once on her TV series and again for Thriller Video. And I thought, oh my gosh, this uh, looks to be the perfect Halloween-type movie, something that maybe you'd throw on during a Halloween party, something that might even not be too gory, might even be something the family or the kids could watch. And so... I just said, Craig, let's do this. And I also sent him links to Elvira's uh, segments of hosting it and everything like that. I thought I would just sit down and watch this as Elvira is hosting it and just kind of relive what I would imagine to be like the ultimate Halloween experience. So this is 1981's The Monster Club, directed by Roy Ward Baker, starring Vincent Price and John Carradine. Have you ever heard of this one before, Craig? Um, the only reason that I had heard of it is because scrolling through Shudder, I had seen the, the box art, I, I guess, for lack of a better word. And it looked interesting, but not necessarily like something that I would be immediately drawn to. I mean, it's, it's older. I don't seek out older movies usually, even though I, uh, I'm a, a big fan of um, Vincent Price, especially. I just don't tend to seek those movies out. So I was actually kind of excited when uh, you suggested it. And I've been, you know, I'm obsessed with, with Cassandra Peterson, Elvira, anyway. And, you know, with her name being in the news lately, I've been excited about her, too. I ended up not watching her hosting gig because... The one that was easy for me to access was on YouTube, and the quality was really low. I watched her introduction to it, and to say it's typical of what she does is not an insult in any way. Um, in fact, it's a compliment. I love her as a host of these types of movies. She's hilarious and sexy and wonderful, and I just love everything about her. Um, and I know that she intentionally hosts bad movies, but I also know that she loves these types of movies that she hosts, and so for her stamp to be on it was kind of another 
feather in its cap for me. So I was looking forward to it. Um, really not knowing anything about it. You had told me because you were so excited. <laughs> you were like, dude, I found the perfect movie. It's got Vincent Price and John Carradine and Elvira hosts it and it's an anthology and it's everything perfect for Halloween. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so I I didn't know it was an anthology movie either. And we we both love anthologies. I love anthologies. Um, so I was, I was looking forward to it. Well, the movie is produced by Milton Sabotsky, and he was the guy behind Amicus Productions. Uh, Amicus Productions did settle into horror anthologies in the 60s and 70s, much like Hammer. Well, Hammer didn't do so many anthologies. They did some, but they mostly were known for their gothic horror. Amicus did anthologies with a lot of the same cast, and you can often confuse them with each other just because they have a similar style, similar cast, everything like that. But most of Amicus's anthologies were usually modern day, like they took place in the modern day, whereas Hammer tend to stick strictly with period pieces, Mm -hmm. so sort of gothic classic horror. I love the Amicus horror movies. Tales from the Crypt, the original one, is an Amicus production. I, for years, thought it was a Hammer production. The House That Dripped Blood. So this isn't actually an Amicus production. It's just one of the producers of Amicus who went off and did some other productions. And this movie didn't actually get a theatrical release in the U.S. either. I know. Which is weird, right? Uh Uh-huh. It was released in the U.K., Uh, on a limited theatrical run. It wasn't a very big success, commercially or critically, which is a shame because they had high hopes for it. You know, the director, Roy Ward Baker, who is a classic director, he's directed a lot of horror, but he's also directed some classic films, like, I think, A Night to Remember, which is many people claim is one of the most definitive Titanic movies, which was, I think, uh, from the 50s or 40s even. And then the writer here, uh, R. Chetwin Hayes, uh, who was a famous British writer of scary stories and and ghost stories. And so this is actually adapted uh, from his material. Um, In fact, he is a character in the movie. He is uh, played by John Carradine as an author. He wasn't actually terribly thrilled with the movie either because he thought that uh, it was a little too cheesy uh, at times and he didn't like the changes to his material, which is fair enough. The movie is clearly intentionally cheesy. It's not taking itself seriously. It's very madcap, which I think is part of its charm. But apparently that, you know, didn't resonate with the audience so well. The producer wanted to have the six biggest horror names um, that he could think of right there on the bill. Vincent Price, uh, John Carradine, Klaus Kinski, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, I was thinking of, who declined it. Yes. Christopher Lee declined it just out of the name alone, I guess, the title (laughs) he didn't like. But uh, Vincent Price, John Carradine, and uh, indeed uh, Donald Pleasance Uh are all three in this movie, as well as a bevy of more or less famous British actors and actresses in here uh, who've been on television and various movies, (laughs) including one of my favorites who I was really happy to see in there, Brett Eklund. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Brett Eklund, right? Brett Eklund, yeah. You know how much I love her from The Wicker Man. <laughs> I know, I do. And she I totally cool. recognized her, and she was one of the people that I knew that I had seen in something else. There are so many recognizable faces in this. Um, I feel like if you were a fan of especially horror uh, during this era, so many recognizable people. And and I recognized a lot of them, and, and, and 
clicked on their IMDb profiles and, and saw that they had been in many things that I had heard of, but not necessarily that I had seen. But uh, Britt Eklund, yes, she was uh, the sexy innkeeper's daughter in uh, <laughs> The Wicker Man. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever forget her singing. She sang like a whole song. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and danced. <laughs> but she was young and, and beautiful then, and, and she's absolutely stunning in this uh, just a little bit older when i say older i don't even necessarily mean middle age but just a little bit older and frankly even more beautiful like she right. just continued to age into her beauty and she plays a relatively small role but i was captivated by her <laughs> oh, i know right <laughs> i wanted to see more of her wanted her to sing again Oh, <laughs> uh, but there are people in here. Uh, Stuart Whitman again. Not not. It's a face you would know. Um, he seemed to always play cowboys and sheriffs and things like that. Definitely a leading man back in the fifties and sixties, and uh, still pretty good looking uh, here in nineteen eighty one. He's in the very last story. Richard Johnson, uh, who is plays a vampire father in this, uh, was in the uh, the haunting. From 1963. Pretty notorious movie based on Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House. Uh-huh. And Dr. Menard from Zombie 2, which we watched, the Lucio Fulci zombie movie, which I have a soft spot in my heart for. But he actually didn't only play horror. He played a ton of stuff. Actually, more like Shakespeare and other stuff than than really horror. Um, so yeah, you just got you got a smattering of names and, and people in here, just like you said. So it's just so surprising uh, that it it was only licensed for television in the U.S. And I think that's how Elvira ended up picking it up, and then it ended up on home video through her Thriller video. So that's probably how most people in the U.S. ever got to see this movie. You've just paid the price of admission to the Monster Club, the Thriller video treat for this time round. Yep, the Monster Club. They have a two-drink minimum, but that ain't the bad news. The bad news is that Count Dracula's the bartender. Bloody Mary's anyone? (laughs) It's a ghoulish goulash starring a pair of macabre's finest. My old pals, Mr. John Carradine and Vincent, Vinnie the P. Price. (laughs) What is it they say? Forewarned is forearmed? Well, believe me, honey, most of the characters in this movie have at least forearms. And going online, I've actually found that there are a lot of people who really have fond memories of this movie, really enjoy it. But it is weird all over the place. It is just a campy, and I say this fond in a, in a nice way, but it's just a campy mess. <laughs> you yeah. Know? It's it's Vincent Price and John Carradine with this goofy wraparound story uh, involving this literal monster club. Vincent Price is a vampire apparently not a very dangerous vampire who's stumbling around the streets and kind of on his last drop, I suppose. And he comes across John Carradine, who we, whose character we see right away uh, is an author because he's passing by a bookstore where his novels and his face is on display. I'm famished. I'm perhaps up for two weeks. Well, I'll be glad to give you some money for food. Can't keep food down. Never could. I'll do anything I can to help you. Anything? Oh, thank you. He bears his fangs and bites down on him. The next shot is of uh, John Carradine's character just sort of rubbing his neck. (laughs) Yeah. 
no visible wound or anything. They're sitting having a cigarette. Yeah, it's, it's kind of silly. And Vincent Price says something which I'm a little confused by, but he says, I drank your blood, but I didn't bite you. So. Well, he he's, I didn't, I didn't bite hard or I didn't bite deep or something. And, and that comes oh. up again. There's a vampire segment in, in the movie, too. Um, apparently... The vampires can just, you know, have a little nip and you'll be fine. They they have to, like, really bite down to infect you, I, I guess. Vincent Price, of course, is amazing. I mean, he's just a, a horror icon and it doesn't matter what movie he's in and he's been in some great movies and he's been in some stinkers we you know like this movie is corny and late in his career he was taking sillier roles i think because that's what he was being offered didn't we do another movie where he it was a pretty (laughs) silly movie that he was in bloodbath at the house of death (laughs) right i love it yeah i liked it too he's barely in it but yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was. I like and his role was really silly. This is uh, the only time in his whole career that he's ever played a vampire. I I just <laughs> random trivia, Vincent Price was a Missouri guy mm. uh, and I live in Missouri. He was born in St. Louis, but for whatever reason, I'm not exactly sure why, he came to my hometown many times. I I, I live in a small college city. I think population like around 20,000, maybe even a little bit less. But Vincent Price, uh, for whatever reason, visited our city many times. He visited uh, for like our, our university's homecoming and was in the parade. And our university has a Vincent Price scholarship, which is still going strong. Within the last mm, five, ten years, the university had a celebration of him and they held a big dinner because I guess in his later years, he wrote a cookbook. (laughs) (laughs) Did did. you go to that dinner? (laughs) I I did go to that dinner. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) I didn't go. His daughter was there or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She talked. So so I, I don't know. I mean, it's not really like a familial connection or anything but just the fact that he you know had some sort of connection to my hometown endears me even more to him oh and he's great and uh this is a silly movie and he's pretty silly in it and i can only imagine that he and john carradine probably filmed their roles in a couple of days you know they're they're the wraparound story so important but all filmed basically in just a couple of locations you know that street that you already talked about and then the monster club now can you tell me more about John Carradine? Because I feel like I should know more about him, but I don't. Like, the only thing I know, or I think I know, is that he has a couple of famous sons, too, right? David Carradine? And John Carradine Jr., right? Well, uh, David Carradine, right, was, uh, was in Kung Fu, a lot of action movies. I think he ended up in Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill? Yeah, I think so. Especially in the 80s, I remember his son, John Carradine, was in a lot of silly horror movies. Like, I'm pretty sure he was in a couple Jim Wynorski pictures, you know what I mean? He was all over the B-movie circuit and whatnot, but but, um, all pretty well respected. I mean, he really came to his own, like, in the 30s. 
you know? We're yeah. talking classic old Hollywood. He, he did play in like House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula and movies like Captain Kid and Return of the Ape Man. And he was on TV like constantly on, on TV shows, the Ed Sullivan show and, and movies around the world in 80 days and, and gotcha. you know, these kind of things like matinee theater and stuff like that. And just, uh, just constantly, constantly working actor, extremely competent, good at what he did in a, in a lot of roles. And then it seems like around the 60s or so, um, he was in a lot of TV series, but then he was also doing like horror films, uh, some good, some bad, most of them kind of silly, the vampires, blood of Dracula's castle, you know, stuff like that, house of the seven corpses. And, and yeah, he just kept going all the way up until his death in 1988. Well, I'm, I have to say, I'm surprised he lasted that long because he looks ancient in this movie. <laughs> now, I, I, I realize that um, today, for whatever reason, um, people seem to be living longer and looking younger yeah. as, as they age. For Again, for whatever reason, I don't know. But he looks, he and um, Vincent Price are both very elderly in this movie, but that's also kind of part of its charm. Mm. The guy he plays, Chetwind Hayes, um, the the real guy. One of the issues that he took with the movie was that um, John Carradine was too old to be playing, playing him, <laughs> and and the the role was offered to Peter Cushing first. Uh, Christopher Lee actually. Christopher Lee. Yeah. Oh, that's right, Christopher Lee. Um, and uh, he turned it down. He would have been uh, much younger at that time. But anyway, whatever. It's cute. So yeah, Aramis, <laughs> Vincent Price, the vampire, bites him, and then he's like, "Oh, I." And then he like goes through his wallet. He's like, "Holy crap! You're this author, and I'm a huge fan." And the guy, <laughs> the guy's like, "Why would you be a huge fan? Why would you want to read about monsters? You are a monster." And he's like, "Uh." Everybody wants to read about people like themselves, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. And he's like, I, I want to pay you back. And it's so cute because they're just they're so like gentlemanly towards one another. Yes. Like the, the vampires just bitten him and he's like, I want to pay you back. And he's like, oh, no, no, no need. That, that. <laughs> That's fine. I've all's, done what I can. Well. Cheerio. Fine. Happy to help you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he says, I I want to take you to this monster club for inspiration. And that gets um, the author's attention. So they go to this monster club, which is surely just a soundstage set up to look kind of like a nightclub mm -hmm. and full of monsters. But the monsters are just people in very mediocre Halloween costumes like yes. <laughs> like silicone masks and uh, plastic oh. fangs and cheap costumes. They look awful. It did, but in the spirit of Halloween, like yes, super fun. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I want to go to this Halloween party. I do. Too. I want to throw on a cheap costume and a funny mask and go dance. To these rock band performances that are all tongue-in-cheek, innuendo, monster songs. and Well, that's the crazy thing about it is it's like for its time, a modern club. There are lights and a stage and rock bands up there performing, you know, songs that are total 80s. Oh, and they're great. The, the first one, I think the first one is called like the Monster Club or something, but the chorus is like... 
I wish I could remember it. I'd sing it, but I can't. It's like, monsters rule. Okay. True. <laughs> sing it over and over again. But it goes on forever. And between every segment, we get a full song performance. Yes. <laughs> that was so crazy, right? The, the movie is just like a big party. I, I think that's what they were going for, right? Just yeah. this kind of insane party, Halloween-y, don't take itself seriously kind of atmosphere. And that's why I thought it was going to be great for Halloween. And I'll say in that respect, as far as I'm concerned, it didn't disappoint. I no, mean, no. And, and it's not like they never say anything about Halloween. They never no. say it's set on Halloween or whatever. It doesn't matter. This is a Halloween movie through and through. Mm. Costumes, monsters, parties, dancing, totally Halloween. And I usually wait, I usually wait until the end, but you've already said it. Like, this is a great Halloween party movie. You know, you're, you're having a house party, turn the TV on, have something on in every room. This is great. <laughs> like, yeah. this would be perfect. People could sit and watch if they wanted to, or it could just be atmospheric in the background. It's great. The stories, oh, before we get into the stories, Vincent Price has, all, there, there's a poster on the wall <laughs> oh my that's God. like monster genealogy, and Vincent Price has a long and detailed monologue about what happens when different monsters mate with one another and what results from that. And I have never in my life heard this kind of thing. No. But two of the stories, you know, there's a vampire story. Of course, we've all heard about vampires. But two of the stories are about these, like, hybrid monsters that are strange but interesting. Like, I really was into it. <laughs> I was, too. He tells this story, and God, that must have been a pain to memorize that. Mo- uh, the actor in me was just sitting there going, oh, my God, how can he deliver this whole thing? <laughs> yeah. But the first story is about a shad mock. A werewolf and a ghoul would produce a weird goo, but a vampire and a ghoul would produce a vam goo. A weir goo and a weir vamp would produce a shaddy. Now, a weir goo and a vam goo would produce a maddie. But a weir vamp and a vam goo would produce a ratty. Now, if a shaddy were to mate with a ratty or a maddie, the results would be a muck. If a muck were to mate with any of the other hybrids, their offsprings would be called shatmucks. And they only whistle. So anyway, he says this is the most sad of all of the monsters, the most pathetic of them. Oh, yeah, they don't really do anything except yeah. whistle. They, all they could do is whistle, yeah. <laughs> and the guy's like, they whistle? And, and Vincent Price is like, well... Not very often, but sometimes. <laughs> and, and he's like, well, what does the whistle do? And he's like, oh, well, I've only ever encountered one person who experienced the Shad Mox whistle. And that's the intro to the story. And the first thing you see is this guy. His name ends up being George in an, like in an asylum and in a padded room. And all these doctors are looking at him and talking about him. And he's catatonic. And then it flashes back. And it's a story that that guy is really only kind of tangentially 
in. But he and his girlfriend, Angela, are scam artists, I guess. And they're looking through a newspaper for their next hit. And uh, they come across this guy who's looking for, like, somebody to help him catalog inventory Yeah, his antiques. Yeah, some antiques. His antiques. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that sounds promising. He probably has lots of expensive stuff. So they send Angela. She goes to his house. It's this big, huge, like, stone gothic mansion. It's gorgeous. And the guy that answers the door... His name is Raven, even though I don't know that they ever say that. Hmm. He opens the door, and he's just very pale and gaunt with pale makeup on his skin and, and dark highlights around his eyes and shadow. And He's kind of in the shadows. He kind He's of in like the shadows over, at first. Kind of not looking right. at her as he's leading her through and talking about how the pr- right. it was very hard to keep secretaries because uh, eventually they couldn't work very well together and... Right. <laughs> and, and and when he finally brings his face into the light, she is so frightened by him that she runs away, which, mm, like, I don't care. It's not like I'm looking for realism in this movie, but he wasn't, I mean, he was kind of ugly, I guess, but, like, he was just pale. Like, it wasn't really that big a deal. I thought they were going for the Lon Chaney Phantom vibe. The Lon Chaney. Yeah. He spins around and the light hits him and expression on his face that he's making and that sort of reveal moment is exactly the same reveal moment as when Christine pulls the mask off the Phantom in the old black and white Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. And, And his face is actually reminiscent to that that's true a, a little less ghastly and uh with with without the horrible teeth and she runs out right sort of screaming and <laughs> like you said <laughs> i i thought that this this was in the trivia i just thought it was really funny that i that genealogy poster the artist who made that drew it before they cast the movie and then they just happened to cast somebody who looked exactly like his illustration. It's like, so crazy, it was, right? It's so weird. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, she's frightened and leaves, but George, her boyfriend convinces her to go back because there is tons of stuff there. And she goes back and I like this story mm. because it's gothic in the way that I don't even know if you'd call him the antagonist, but the monster is very sympathetic. Yeah. Like, He's very meek and mild and, and lonely, sad, lonely, sad about the fact that he's an outcast and he can't be around people and he's trapped in his home because if he goes out, people have these terrible reactions to him and it's really sad. So <laughs> they start working together and then he obviously starts trying to woo her in a very sweet way, giving mm. her flowers, giving her rooms full of flowers. And it seems to me that she started to feel sorry for him. And she goes back to George and says that she wants to pull out. She doesn't want to do it anymore. But he convinces her to keep going. You know, like we can at least get something. You know, even if it's just a little something, we can get something. Just stick around for a while. Raven is friends of the birds. <laughs> <laughs> and and not even not even the, you know, high class doves, but they're lowly cousins, the pigeons. <laughs> yes. He's friends. The, the birds are his friends and he feeds them and here's there is only friends. And this cat has been skulking around for a long time. 
<laughs> and eventually this cat kills one of his birds and he's devastated. He picks up this dead bird and, you know, is like crying. And then he sees the cat and he puckers his lips and the camera does an intense close up on his lips and he whistles. And Angela hears it from inside and it scares her. And she runs out and crosses him as he's running in and he's weeping and runs up the stairs and she goes outside and the cat is completely melted. Yeah. Like, a, a gooey pile. I mean, in the shape of a cat, but just a gooey pile on the ground. <laughs> yeah. And so she doesn't particularly freak out about that. George tells her to look for a safe and she sees him make a transaction with somebody for a ring that he shows her. And then he puts it in the safe so he knows where it is. And then Raven asks her to marry him and she doesn't really respond. Like, I think she just leaves and she feels guilty. But George is like, well, just go along with it. And tell him, if you're going to marry him, you need a ring, so he'll get that ring out of the vault, and you can memorize the combination. And she's reluctant, but she does. Yeah, she's super reluctant. Yeah, but he's like, he he said, of course you can have the ring, you can have anything you want, all I want is your love. He says, you could still love me. Yeah, you could still love me. And he confesses to being a Shadwalk, and he's like, mm, I can't really explain what that is, but <laughs> my family, if you meet my family, you'll kind of get it. And So let's have this big engagement party, and it'll be fancy, and we can dress up, but it has to be a masquerade, because I don't want you to see people's faces <laughs> and she's like that's cool i love getting dressed up so they have this big masquerade ball <laughs> which is a a total eyes wide shut vibe it's it's very oh totally quiet nobody's talking you're right quiet nobody's talking everybody's just dancing but the the shadwalk masks are spooky because they're basically just like formless opaque plastic over their face and they're very super simple, but like in that simplicity, just hiding whatever is behind there is kind of creepy. It's a big, you know, ballroom dance and they're all dancing and Raven stands back while she's like being passed among the other men of the family. And eventually she sneaks away to the safe, which I thought was so stupid. Like, yeah, this really? Is the worst time to do this, by the way. <laughs> right. And, of course, he catches her, but he's like, whatever, take the money. I don't care. I don't need the money. You could still love you me. You could still love me. Mm -hmm. And she freaks out and's like, I could never love you. And you're a monster. You're hideous. And um, he whistles. Then it cuts back. Oh, and I loved that scene when he whistles and the uh, ballroom dancing just stops. Yeah. The music stops. Everybody stops and just turns and looks in that direction. Super cool. Yeah. Um, but the next thing we see is um, back at her apartment with her boyfriend. She comes in the door, but she's hooded. And she walks into a corner, and she turns around, and she pulls her hood down, and her face is completely melted. And she says to him, you could still love me. And she keeps repeating that. I loved that story. Oh, like, it was... it's not a cinematic masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but the story yeah. I thought was great. Heartbreaking, <laughs> Heartbreaking right? Oh, it was so good. Very Tales from the Crypt. Um, mm -hmm. And so cool. <laughs> and then we get... A song that's I'm just a sucker for your love. <laughs> With a this, vampire song. Hilarious. It basically, it's 
three or four minutes of just this guy's face. And to be oh, fair, least, yeah. for four or five minutes of this guy's face, he was putting on quite a performance. Yeah. But even the camera needed something interesting to do, and it kept like zooming in and zooming out and zooming in and zooming out and zooming in and zooming out. And I was thinking, God, if I had to watch this on a big screen, I think I would like get dizzy at this point. <laughs> the songs are fun. I have to say they dragged on a little long because literally you get the whole performance. But you know, they weren't bad. Like, no, they weren't. They weren't bad. They were catchy, right? Yeah, that's true. Good. Yeah, that's true. The the lip syncing left a little bit to be desired, but whatever. Who cares? Yeah. Then the club secretary, who's a werewolf, introduces <laughs> this director named Lintum Batsuski, and he's a vampire, but he just looks like a guy, handsome older guy. And he said that he's going to present this film based on his own youth, and then we jump right into the next story. The vampire story. And this is the one that Britt Eklund is in, so yeah. I'll let you take it. Oh, it's it's kind of a interesting story. You're not you don't know what to take of it at first. Uh it's this little boy and uh he's going to school and his mother, who's Britt Eklund, uh, you know, tells her you know, encourages him. You mustn't worry about those horrid children teasing you. You see, you must remember that you are better than they are. Back in the old country where we came from. Your father was a nobleman. He's a count. Which means, of course, that I am a, a countess. Well, then you must be a viscount. But then we see it later on in the movie, and, oh, your dad worked so hard for you, and, you know, try your best uh, at school. It's, it's a mom who knows that her kid is, is being bullied, and he's kind of a sad... Hot mom. Yeah, hot mom. <laughs> hot mom. That's not unimportant. <laughs> I mean, it is to the story, but not to me. <laughs> yeah, you know, right? Not me watching. Either. But it's typical. <laughs> it's typical boyhood. You know, he goes to school, and the kids are teasing him and pushing him around, and they're jumping over a puddle, and they're they're daring him to jump over a puddle, and he can't. He jumps right in the middle of the puddle, which causes all the kids to laugh and. The principal or some teacher, whoever, kind of shoos them away while the kid stands there in the puddle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for the next ass. five minutes, it's kind of weird. But he's being looked upon by Donald Pleasance's character, uh, who looks to be dressed like a priest at that time. I thought anyway. I know, but then later he's not. I guess it was just a disguise. Yeah. Donald Pleasance. I didn't know he was in all those old Amicus movies. I only knew him from Halloween. Halloween. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. Um, and it's nice seeing him here. He does a fine job with his role, I think. The son comes home, and his dad comes up, I think, uh, from his basically where he sleeps, which is in the basement. And he goes through this long monologue as well, uh, as far as talking about his job to his son. And Yeah, and he warns him to watch out for men with violin cases. Yeah. It, this, this one was sillier. Mm -hmm. Of all three, this one was the silliest. And... It was kind of like um, Ozzy and Harriet, except <laughs> the dad's a vampire. Yeah, you know, like that's what it, that's what it felt like. But like, not a mean, scary vampire. That's just what he does. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, like dad gets up at night and goes to work. Oh my god! <laughs> but not before kissing his wife and kid goodbye, and, and the kid looks out the window as he's leaving, and he turns around and smiles and waves, and he's very affable and friendly, like not frightening in any way but no, it's a hundred percent apparent 
that he's a vampire. It's never hidden from us. It's silly. But then it was around this time that I noticed that this violin music was continuing yes. to play, underscoring the whole thing. And I was getting these distinct Godfather vibes. Yeah. It yeah. was so much like the Godfather with all this going on and these guys with violin cases running around. And, and uh, eventually they corner the kid. and They are D- Donald Pleasance and his he's got like some goons. And they do carry around violin cases. It turns out that they're vampire hunters. And that's, you know, all it comes down to. Donald Pleasance gets the kid to talk about his dad and the fact that he sleeps all day. And, oh, really? Where does he sleep? Oh, down in the basement. Okay, so... You should go down and check it out sometime. Yeah, right. And it's so as soon as the mom leaves to go shopping or whatever, the kid goes down there, finds his dad in the coffin, is scared, and then the guys show up. We are the B-Squad, Sonny. The Blini. Special branch concerned with blood crimes. We have sworn to eradicate the curse of vampirism from this land. Your father has been the most difficult case of my career. I've hunted him for months. He's been clever. Very clever. But now I've got him. It's total, like, untouchables type stuff. It's so silly. Yeah. The mom comes home, but not before this guy has hammered a stake through dad's chest. And then mom comes home and screams. And at that moment, um, the vampire wakes up in enough time to bite Donald Pleasance on the neck. So now his guys look at him and are like, oh my God, sir, well, now you're a vampire. And he's freaking out. And they're like, well, we're just going to have to stake you. you know." Uh, Sorry, sir. <laughs> trying to make it as painless as possible. If you wouldn't mind laying down over here. <laughs> How would you be most comfortable, sir? <laughs> <laughs> it's so hilarious. And it was kind of hilarious. They go through this just wacky routine now. It's like people bumping their heads into walls. And you know, he holds up a mannequin in front of him, which they accidentally stake and whatnot. Anyway, I don't remember how it is, but they finally get the stake through his chest. They get him down on the stairs, and then the guy, you know, just the random goon guy, like, holds this huge stake up over his chest and then just very lightly taps it with the hammer, like, tap, 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 tap. But apparently, (laughs) that that was was enough. enough, Because he's dead. And so they they take him out on a stretcher, and again, there's more physical comedy there. It's, it's, It's pretty stupid. But then we cut back down to the basement where mom and son are grieving, but dad pops up and he was like, thank goodness I always wear my steak-proof vest. (laughs) He's like, there's tomato ketchup under here. And they all laugh and hug, and the dad says, such a happy family. And then that's it. That's the end. It's so cheesy dumb. as hell. Uh, so cheesy. And in watching it, like, honestly, I was rolling my eyes a little bit. But oh, I yeah. knew talking to you that I would enjoy talking about it. Because <laughs> as silly as it is, it's cute and it's funny. That's another thing I like about this movie. And I was reading reviews and a lot of the review, and when I say reviews, I don't mean critical reviews. I mean viewer reviews. Right. A lot of them were saying, you know, this is fun because it's like old school horror. This is something that you could sit down and watch with your family. And it is. Mm. This would be something that you could sit down with your family and watch around Halloween time. It is scary in some regards, but there's no, there's very, very little gore, like some light blood, which ends up being tomato ketchup (laughs) and some mild, mild violence. But 
I, I could show this in school. Oh, yeah. And I like that. I appreciate that about it, especially if you had young kids who were, you know, excited about Halloween and you didn't want to show them Nightmare on Elm Street, but you wanted to kind of get that spooky vibe. I don't know how much kids would appreciate this because kids tend to think old things are lame, but yeah, uh, I don't know. I liked it. I, I would sit down and watch it with kids. It's good storytelling. It reminded me a lot of like after school specials yes. or like mm-hmm. those Saturday morning, not necessarily after school, but those, those Saturday morning live action kind of drama things that yeah. sometimes would be kind of creepy and scary. I guess kind of like the precursor to like Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark or something like that. I know we've talked about it before, but it's the only one that I can think of off the top of my head, uh, The Red Room or, or yeah. something like that that they played when we were kids. It's along those lines. But anyway, I liked that about it. It's charming. Yes, it is. And then we're back to the club, and the next song is about a stripper, which is... I'm a stripper. <laughs> actually, I thought it was the catchiest song of the bunch. I actually liked it. Then, during the instrumental break of the song, suddenly on the other stage, there is a woman who starts stripping. And I was like, whoa, this is actually going to be kind of cool. And then she turns around and is facing the wall, and she starts to take her bra off. The light goes out on the stage so that you just see her in shadow. (laughs) And she starts peeling off from one arm her skin. (laughs) Uh You see her bones in shadow. Peels the other arm, uh, the skin off, and you see the other bone, and then peels the legs and all that. It basically becomes a dancing skeleton. (laughs) Yeah, loved it. Absolutely loved it. That was brilliant. I I I thought it was great. It was animated, of course, you know, from the time that it switches lighting. I was surprised that the movie was going to go there. Yeah. But it never went live action beyond burlesque. You know, mm-hmm. it was just teasy. Kid-friendly. Totally. And right at the point where it would have become a titty show, then the lighting changed and it turned to animation and she started stripping her skin off. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was great. And then uh, the uh, the author guy asks, he's like, he, he points to one of the faces at the very bottom of the genealogy chart. He's like, this girl, she can't be a monster because she looks like a human. And Erasmus is like, oh, well, I mean, she's only kind of a monster because she's a a Hume goo, (laughs) 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 which is half human, half ghoul. And the author is like, well, what does she do? Like, does she whistle? (laughs) 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 And he's like, no, they really don't do much of anything. He said, uh, aside from they do have like a carrion appetite which comes from their ghoulish ancestry. They're really not bad. They really don't do anything. Mm-hmm. But then he uh, tells the story. Well, I don't know if he tells it, but we get the next story, and it's the Hume-Gu story. The Hume-Gu. And it's the last one, and I liked it too. It started out looking like it was going to be another vampire story, but mm-hmm. it turns out that that's really what we see in the beginning is a, a film set, a vampire movie being made. 
and the director is talking to one of his production assistants and asking about scouting locations, and the production assistant makes some sort of excuse or something, and the director's like, well, fine, whatever, I'll do it myself. So he goes production scouting mm. and then gets in over his head. Yeah, he's driving through the London countryside and following some map or something, drives uh, to this place, and he sees a sign for Ghoulsville <laughs> and drives down that street. It goes through the forest and then into this massive fog. And as soon as he comes out on the other side of the fog, uh, he is immediately in this very small, like, village, I guess. It looks like a movie set. Yeah. There's a little cemetery there that looks like all the graves have been dug up. There's a little church. Then he walks into what must be like a hotel or a motel or something. Uh-huh. Uh, and the proprietor walks out and is just super spooky. And um, he says, ah, who, who runs things here? I want to I check this place out for movie set and ask for permission. And this guy says, oh, the elders. Uh, the elders. Well, how do I talk to the elders? Oh, the elders will be back soon. But uh, he walks upstairs and around. Is this? Oh, this is when uh, he starts getting crowded by just creepy people. Yeah, they appear out of nowhere. That innkeeper, by the way, was played by Patrick McGee or Maggie. I'm not sure. Um, but he had a really uh, disturbing role in A Clockwork Orange. Every role in A Clockwork Orange was disturbing. Well, that's true. But I recognized him. But yeah, those, um, these, these gray-clothed and gray-faced people just, like, appear out of nowhere, and there are a bunch of them. And he tries to go out to his car, and they're, like, crowded all around him. He gets out to his car, but it's clearly been sabotaged. He yells at them. They push him inside. Yeah, they push him back inside. He, he locks himself in a room, and then this young girl appears and identifies herself. She talks weird. Like, I don't know why. Like, she doesn't have full language or something. It's weird. She's, she's pretty. Her name is Luna. I saw that she had been in other things. I didn't write it down. Um, oh, she was in Elephant Man. Mm. So she brings him food, and she very cryptically, she, she compliments his clothing. These only clothes we have. figure out that she's talking about graves from the graveyard and she says but now all of the boxes are empty Mm -hmm. but she tells them that her mother was human and she's dead now and i guess they ate her i don't don't know um but so she's a hume goo (laughs) and uh she she basically confesses that he's food they're they're going to eat him but she says run across the courtyard to the church because they can't go in there i can because i'm only Half ghoul. <laughs> I'm, I'm Hume <Hingu. laughs> Right. Um, and so he does, and they try to stop him, but he's able to get in there. And then he finds, I say a corpse, but it's really like a skeleton with a book. And in this book, he reads the story about how these ghouls took over this village. And this mm. part of the movie was genius. Yes. And I would watch like a feature-length film about this and in this style. I agree. I loved it. <laughs> you know, it actually made up for the kind of low-budget production design of these ghouls, you know, which were just, like you said, they look like gray people, um, right. was seeing the imagery 
uh, of the book, apparently, that he's flipping through, where it has illustrations of these ghouls, which are these, like, creatures. It actually looked like something from Tales from the Crypt with the fangs coming out and looking spooky. And I think just mentally I was able to project that level of terror onto the people that were attacking him now. I was like, oh, God, this is... This is really freaky. And at that moment, they start throwing rocks. Oh, she she runs in, right? So she, yeah. she manages to, to run in and join him. Uh, and they start throwing rocks through the windows. And she even mentions to him, they're super easy to kill people with rocks, these guys. Yeah. Uh, and so they're kind of under assault from afar. But he he's, has this big stick with a cross on it that he finds in the corner that he sticks out the window. And that is what, ah, you know, kind of kind of like helps. vampires, like drives them back a little bit. So he uses that stick with a cross on it to get him and her out. And he, he promises her, I'm going to get you out of here. I'm going to put you in movies and all kinds of stuff, right? And so they just full-on run uh-huh. uh, using that uh, to fend those guys off. And they tear off down the road that he drove in on. And he trips a couple times and he sticks the, the stick up uh, with the cross to try to just leave that behind so that they won't progress on the path. They take another way around. Eventually, they get to the fog. And uh, their guys are right behind them, and they run through the fog. But as they're running through the fog, she gets hit in the back of the head by one of those rocks. And they're on the other side of the fog, which presumably is what kind of keeps them in. Right. But she's dying, and she dies. You know, sad. It's a touching <laughs> moment, right? Pretty sad. Well, I mean, the acting was pretty bad, but yeah, like, all she wanted to do was you know, get out. She Can you get me out? Will you get me out? And she wants to wear nice clothes and ride the underground because she, they told her there's really good eating in the underground. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> but she's, she's a pretty girl and she, you know, she plays very innocent and sweet and uh, again, no blood, no gore, nothing. It's just, she got hit in the back and she's like, it's just like when father hit the rabbit in the back, it died, and now I will die. And then she closes her eyes. <laughs> she and dies. She's dead. So he flags down a car of cops that are coming by, and uh, he just runs out. He hops in the car, and the cops, instead of going down the road to get help, turn around and start driving back uh, into Goolsville. And uh, he's like, Where are you going? What are you doing? And they turn down there and they start to go through the fog. Uh, and the cop turns to him and says, oh, we always uh, have a police escort for the elders when they return to London. And so, you know, it has that twist at the end where he's not going to escape. But my God, I thought this was a creepy story. That It was creepier than it had any right to be based it on was, production yes, value. It was, yes, it was. That reminded me very much, for whatever reason, of Twilight Zone. It felt very mm. Twilight Zone. Um, yes. And in a good way, you know, and in the end, he's in the back of the car and the ghouls, of course, are like pounding on the windows and then the cops turn around and they've got the big scary teeth and that's where it ends. That was the only one that the uh, the real author whose stories these are based on, that was the only one that he felt was adapted appropriately. He, he liked that one. And I did too. And that probably was my favorite one. And And those illustrations, and I say illustrations because it wasn't animation, they were still, but... Yeah. They did cool things with the camera, 
zooming in and out and moving to almost make it look animated. But the illustrations were just great. Like, they looked so good. And seriously, I would watch that movie, the movie of one ghoul showing up and the town minister being like, oh, all God's creatures. And so it takes him in and, like, washes it up and puts it in bed. And you just see this little ghoul, like, peeking up over the sheets. I would so watch that movie. It would be great. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so now we're back to the club, and the author says he wants to leave, and uh, Erasmus is like, no, I want to induct you into the club. And he's like, but I'm not even a monster. And then he's like, oh, but we can't have a monster's club without having humans. And then Vincent Price goes off on another long monologue. It's genius. In the past 60 years, Humes have exterminated over 150 million of their own kind. No effort has been spared to reach this astronomical figure. And the methods that they have used must demand our unstinted admiration. You know, Humes began with certain very serious disadvantages, but these they overcame with wonderful ingenuity. Not having a fang or a claw... or even a whistle worth talking about. They invented guns and tanks and bombs and aeroplanes and extermination camps and poison gas and daggers and swords and bayonets and booby traps and atomic bombs and flying missiles, submarines, warships, aircraft carriers, and motor cars. They have even perfected a process whereby they can spread a lethal disease on any part of this planet. Not to say anything about nuclear power. (laughs) Oh, during their short history, you know, Humes have subjected other Humes to death by burning, hanging, decapitation, strangulation, electrocution, shooting, drowning, crushing, wrecking disemboweling, (laughs) and other methods far, far too revolting for the delicate stomachs of this August descent. (laughs) I never realized he was so talented. We don't like to boast. You can't argue with anything he said there. It's pretty good. It's it's a really fitting end to it. And then it just ends with a dance party. And with Vincent Price and John Carradine, like a hundred years old. Bopping around. Dancing with these, <laughs> let's, let's call them robust women. Oh, boy. It was something. And it's just that party at the end. And that's just it. Like, you know, all these people in masks and stuff singing and dancing and partying and the old guys dancing. A little bit of Rocky Horror feeling there. A I little felt like bit. They were trying to capture some of that spirit there too, just with the randomness, you know, and yeah. all those monsters, horrible monster like masks and things like that. But again, it just felt cool in its campiness. Yep. So yeah, I mean, I ended the movie feeling happy. I liked the three stories. The third one was definitely my favorite one. The first one I thought was just heartbreaking, um, yeah. touching and whatever. It just. Just great. It was a good mix. It was a really nice balance. It was. You had the heartbreaking one, and then the silly kind of cheesy one, and then the really kind of like creepy one. It was a really good mix. I didn't even mind the songs. I thought the songs would be annoying, but I thought they were fine. They were kind of fun. You can get the soundtrack. I think uh, if you buy the Blu-ray, it comes with not only the soundtrack with uh, the songs, but also some of the score, too. 
I don't know that I need it, but just in case you wanted to. <laughs> oh. did, speaking of speaking of soundtrack, did you know? I, I saw this in the end credits that the violin music in the background of the second uh, thing was all traditional Transylvanian folk melodies. No. Yes. I totally noticed the music, and I loved it, and I thought that it was genius. Like, they talk about watch out for guys carrying violin cases, and then you've got this heavy violin score. Yeah, it was cool. It's a goofy movie. It's goofy, it's cheesy, it's silly, it doesn't take itself too seriously. I I honestly, you know, I understand why the three horror legends who didn't take it, I understand why they didn't. And I also know from things that we've talked about before that Vincent Price in his later years was just really not getting the kind of work that he had been getting in the past, and he wanted to continue working, so he would accept pretty much anything that got thrown his way. Mm. But that being said, one of, you know, I don't know if it was one of his final films, but definitely late, late in his career, um, he did Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands, Mm. which I just think is one of the most beautiful movies ever and Mm. he is absolutely heartbreaking in that movie and john carradine is you know like you said he he still lived uh, i don't know a good five six seven years after this but (laughs) and i i mean this with no disrespect but the man looked old like he looks like he's got one foot in the grave um yeah but but (laughs) it's still it's still great to see these old guys who clearly wanted to work and were still getting work and it's a fun movie. I'm not surprised that it doesn't have huge critical acclaim. I'm a little bit more surprised that it doesn't have more of a cult following than it does because it seems like the type of movie that's ripe for that. But I'm glad to have seen it. It was fun. I might even watch it again. Yeah, me too. Especially around Halloween time. Yeah. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode. If you enjoyed this, please share it with a friend. We have plenty of more uh, Halloween-themed episodes coming up for you this month, so please stick around. Just search us two guys in a chainsaw podcast, and you'll find our YouTube page, our homepage, our Twitter feed. Uh, If you can think of a good Halloween movie for us to do this year or next year, just let us know just by submitting to a comment on one of those places, and we'll be sure to put it on our list. Until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys in a chainsaw. (laughs) 